0: Slugs, whether in farming or just a gardener, we know how irritating they can be, but beyond that, what do we actually know about them?
1: We don't know how long they stay in these patches, we don't know how permanent they are, we don't know how they're moving between them.
0: On the programme today, how microchipping slugs could solve a few mysteries. Also, we explore some different research with no microchips, finding out about worms on our farms.
2: If one has uh, small worm populations, it's looking again at tillage intensity and frequency, rotation diversity and keeping something in the soil all the time.
0: And a far from fruitless exercise later, as we find out how the weather this year has been ideal for our blackcurrant growers.
1: The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale.
0: Good morning. Yes, you heard me right just now, microchipping slugs. Uh, we do it to our pet dogs and cats, but slugs? Uh, well, yes, the team at Harper Adams are doing just that to try and find out what slugs actually get up to, how far they travel, how long they live, that kind of thing. Adreen Hart Rule is from Harper Adams, so uh, what's it all about, Adreen?
1: It's basically linking back to a PhD project which we're having run at the university by Emily Forbes, and basically what the PhD project is about is we know slugs are a problem I don't need to say that Um, but we actually don't really know that much about them really Um, we know that they gather together in wet moist areas in the field Um, one of our professors call it um, a slug utopia if you like but we don't know how long they stay in these patches, we don't know how permanent they are we don't know how they're moving between them so for that And to be able to therefore use better pest control, we need to be able to track them. Unlike snails, they can go into like 10 centimetres below the soil surface. So as soon as they go there, we can't track them, unlike a snail where you can just paint their shells, etc. So it's a lot harder. So what Emily has done has turned it to RFID technology. So the same that you'll see in microchipping your cats and dogs and shop theft labels, etc., and actually inserted those into the slugs themselves. We have used this kind of method before. We used it um, a few years ago in vine weevils and obviously strawberry pests, and we could therefore track them over the strawberries. So it's a method that we've proved in the past, so we're now applying it to a different pest.
0: And I guess it's a bit early to say, any any results
1: yet? Yes, so it's part of a PhD project, which normally Uh take around four years to complete, so it's a couple of years off um, being able to look at it um, she has done some tests she is seeing some of the changes the patches are going but obviously there's a lot of analysis to go on so at the moment we can't really say what the results are
0: it, it must be fascinating because as you say you know we, we we know slugs are causing the damage but actually why where how all those questions we just don't know do we
1: exactly most definitely and even your person in their garden has a hatred of slugs everyone at all different levels understands this pest problems and we've all got an invested interest in it
0: what are we stood in front of here explain talk us through
1: um so what we have here is um we kind of not real slugs because they right. wouldn't survive it'll be too mean and horrible um so we've got some that are hidden away in this soil um and what we have here is a smaller version of what Emily goes out into the field and uses so hers is more like the size of a metal detector while I'm holding one which kind of fits into the palm of my hand and for demonstration you can just about see the microchip which is inserting slugs there so it's
0: okay yeah
1: thinner than your fingernail in there very, yep. very very tiny but what it does is when it goes over we get it to the point where it will say reading and then when you find the microchip it makes that noise and then on the screen there's a number so exactly the same with emily's version of the scanner each slug basically gets a number it gets an identity so what she can do is she can go out into the night, which is when they're mostly active, um, and just basically use her scanner like a metal detector would, and then she'll get the numbers coming through. And that way she can go out in general interview intervals throughout the night and be able to find the slugs in the field and see how far they've moved in that time period.
0: Fabulous. Well, we'll uh, have to come back and do an update in a couple of years' time <laughs> and see what results we finally get. But it's, it's really interesting. Thank you.
1: No worries. Thank you. It
0: will be fascinating to see what comes from that project, and we will report back. Once the work is complete, Adrian Hart rule there at Harper Adams microchipping slugs. So, we've talked about microchipping slugs, someone who needs no microchipping. Um, we know what he gets up to. <laughs> I'm
3: not sure about that, shall
0: <laughs> <you>? <laughs> Oh, I'm looking at the grey markets, so oh, that's right. all I meant. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's Chris Spratch from uh, Open <laughs> Field, as you
3: can hear. Hello, Chris. Morning, Sean. Uh, what, what are happening with those grey markets then? Uh, well, uh, after several weeks of bullish news, the market's faltered a little this week, actually. Um, Russia continues to export wheat at a very strong pace. Latest figures from their ministry midweek came out, uh, export figures of wheat, 6.4 million tonnes compared to 3.7 million tonnes last year, uh, with analysts calling their wheat exports by the end of the season possibly up to 35 million tonnes. So, you know, very big figures really, bearing in mind our UK crops probably 13.5 to 14 million tonnes. Uh, and at this pace of export, at the start of the season, that's led to possible talk about grain export duty being imposed at some stage to curb export limits uh, from Russia in response to uh, pressure from their domestic livestock uh, producers, among others. So, uh, you know, we're starting to see a bit of political influence uh, play their part. That seemed talk about that sent the market higher uh, initially, and then down with a bit of a bump, Uh, losing several pounds over the course of this week as those rumours were effectively scotched by the uh, Ministry Direct. So it looks like we'll see a game of cat and mouse over the next few months, I think, really. Will they, won't they impose export uh, restrictions uh, at some stage throughout the course of the season? But in a way that can be counterproductive because the exporters will want to actually therefore get their grain out and uh, that means that more will, more will actually be front-end loaded. So you can imagine this uncertainty is going to be very telling, I think. Uh, and We're already starting to see uh, an influence there coupled with other factors as well and uh, I think we are going to see some you know, large swings in prices like we are doing already even over a relatively short period of hours or days. German wheat production, that's down 23% year on year at uh, 18.6 million tonnes. And I think as the dust starts to settle, the market seems supported overall because, you know, we have got some fairly significant downgrades uh, and still plenty to keep our eye on as far as the southern hemisphere is concerned. But at the bullish sentiment of two, three weeks, weeks ago seems to have eased a little bit at the moment. Uh, so I, I still see good values, but a bumpy ride ahead. In the UK, the first hand uh, farm supplies, I think they're going to be a little bit more difficult to tempt out now, certainly in the short term, now that we've seen harvest almost finished and values having he's back. Uh, yield reports in my area anyway, which is really sort of um, the, uh, the wash up to the Humber and into South Yorkshire. Yield reports there are varying, really, very considerably, as, as much as I've seen in many years, really. So not all growers are in the situation to be able to take advantage of, uh, of these higher prices that we've got at the moment. Um, and obviously some people made commitments uh, prior to harvest. And, and that variation really comes from soil types and, and whether the weather's been a bit friendlier to some people than others, really. Uh, the other local news is that the Hull ethanol plant is to close at the end of September uh, for maintenance. That did little uh, to help support values locally. Um, but I think since Christmas we've seen wheat prices up 30% and an increase in ethanol prices of 9%. So might be a bit more to that than meets the eye. Malting barley values, well they're holding up well, um, we've got a good feed base there uh, and uh, a sensible premium and I think uh, attractive prices at the moment uh, most spring samples seem usable with the exceptions a uh, few and far between really but there, there are some out there where soil types and weather patterns have hindered uh, development seed rape, well the Trade wars between China and the US seem to be ongoing and although they're not making really that much improvement, uh, you know, it's making the market more difficult to read and everybody's treading on eggshells. Uh, I'm not quite sure the importers into the UK will have uh, well such an easy ride as they've had for the last year or two. You know, We've still got issues in Canada and Australia and their crops are under pressure. As far as prices are concerned, feed wheat for September 172 to 176 ex farm, with November 174 to 178, and May 19 178 to 182, dependent on area. The uh, milling wheat premium is somewhere around about £15 at the moment. Feed wheat for November 19, so that's the crop that's about to go in the ground, well, 159 to 162 for November. And I do just think that there will be, at these sort of levels, people will be drilling uh, significant areas of of wheat, not just uh, here but uh, elsewhere. And uh, there's an old saying, Sean, big prices cure big prices. Feed barley 168 to 172 for September, with November 170 to 174. Spring barley, well, that's just over 200 pound now for the autumn, uh, for the right quality sample. But in the new year, rolling into the spring summer months, 210 to 215 should be achievable for those that feel confident. Anyway, to store a quality product at, at these sort of numbers. seed rape 321 to 325 for September, with November 325 to 328 X Farm. So, I think we've got some attractive prices out there. It really just depends, I think, how, how what percentage people have got sold at the moment. And I think also, you know, there's plenty of uh, news being talked about this week about Brexit. And you can't help wonder about the implications of a no deal uh, Brexit to our grain prices. And I think that's creating a bit of uncertainty. And, um, and maybe we shouldn't underestimate that uh, factor when looking at forward prices. Thanks, Chris. Chris Spratt
0: from Open Field. Now, after the snow, but before the dry spell, were you one of the farmers who took part in the 60-minute worm idea? We know that worms are crucially important to soil and therefore a benefit on the farm almost actually the exact reverse of the slugs we were talking about earlier. Uh, Jackie Stroud is a soil scientist at Rothamsted. She was behind the 60 Minute Worms scheme. So what was it all about, Jackie?
2: So 60 Minute Worms is an initiative that I launched this spring between March and April, and I asked farmers to go out and spend an hour in their fields and count and look at the numbers and types of worms they had. And I had a fantastic response. I actually had to do three print runs from my little uh, pilot study, and over 120, I think, people took part in all and uh, and it meant over 14,000 earthworms were counted so we have one of the first indications of soil health in the country but the great thing about it was we had quite a good interaction so on Twitter people were going, oh Jackie, I, you know, I need some help with ID so I went and did a, a YouTube demo and then, uh, then I subsequently made a useful uh, worm quiz for people to look through and just help with the method and I had a worm shop at the end of it just for some feedback as to what people found, the hard bits, the good bits and what they wanted changed and based on that we were then able to launch a, a new... Newly flipped by AHDB called "How to Count Worms." So now we have a standard method that we can all use, um, and basically, you know, feedback uh, that we can use to look at soil health in our in our systems. And the really exciting thing for me is that we saw worm populations range from sort of just seventy-five thousand a hectare all the way over to seven million per hectare. Um, but what it can uh, show is uh, which soil management practices work best, and because we're using the same method, we can all compare and share, and, and all together help improve our, our soil health as we go along.
0: Do you think you know if in agriculture understand the importance of worms in soils and how that's helping the soil?
2: Definitely. If you ask um, people what, what's a useful indicator of soil health, then number one ranked is worms, because it's one of the first things that you see, and, and it changes. Um, and even more broadly, sort of just ploughing the soil and looking at the numbers of birds that are following you, or the litter bag degradation rates that sort of thing so there's something that we all see uh, and secondly when I asked farmers well is this going to be useful over 50% of people said based on their worm populations they would use that to change their soil management practices if it wasn't what they wanted so that you know as a scientist it means what we need to do is um, we have to be really careful and really make sure it's really robust so that this is a useful technique because so if you're going to change your management practices based on something we want something that's reliable and repeatable and good.
0: So what kind of changes would they be making from the evidence that they've seen?
2: So if one has uh, small worm populations it's looking again at tillage intensity and frequency, rotation diversity and keeping something in the soil all the time, like cover, cover crops or organic matter, feeding that soil biology. So they're the key changes. Um, there's no sort of golden bullet so to speak it's usually a combination of management practices but we know what worms like they don't like to be disturbed and they like food so just bringing those elements back into the rotation more will, will deliver the benefits that worms can bring
0: now of course you've worked at uh, what australia and across europe mm-hmm. here here in the uk how is soil in the uk at the moment would you say how are we doing
2: I'm very pleased that people are interested in their soils. Being able to go out there and measure, you take time to spend an hour in your field at least, because some people said they spent two or three hours because it took a bit longer when you first go. Um, But we're interested in our soils. And if we're interested in sharing, that's how we're going to get the best Um, If we can measure it, then we can manage it. And so that's really, I'm very excited that people care and, and we can move forward.
0: And like water, we can't manage without soil if we want agriculture to survive, can we?
2: Indeed, indeed. Soil is really important and it is, many people say it's the keystone to profitability.
0: It is indeed. Jackie Stroud at Rothamsted on the importance of soil. And of worms. We've talked a lot over recent weeks, actually, uh, for much of the year, thinking about it, about Mother Nature, from that significant snow that fell in February and March to the heat wave of June and July. It's fair to say it's been a challenging year for many in agriculture, but for blackcurrant growers it's been alright, actually. The season is just coming to a close, but the weather, both last winter and the summer, means that this year's crop is actually sweeter than usual. And that means more money with bonuses paid for that additional sweetness. It's amazing to think, really, 90% of black currants grown in Britain end up at Ribena, where that natural extra sweetness will be more than welcome. Uh, Joe Hildrich is chair of the British Black Current Foundation and is on the line. Joe, how's it been this year?
4: It's been really great. I mean, it hasn't been, uh, the crop hasn't been super enormous, but the berries have been really sweet. The crop all came together and the quality has been really good.
0: A number of farmers obviously have been um, concerned about the weather. We had the winter, the significant snow effects in some parts of the country, then this big, dry, hot summer. But actually, that's, that's gone in your favour, hasn't it?
4: Yeah, I mean, of course, for us, the, the bushes need to have a proper vernalisation, which means they need enough chill hours so that they go properly dormant. Then they come all together, they bud break together, the fruit comes all together. And, of course, the summer sun has been brilliant for us this year. The roots have been deep enough to pick up all the moisture. uh, And the sun has turned all available um, sweetness into sugars. So it's been good for processors as well.
0: And and that, that means a bonus, doesn't it, if the sweeter the fruit?
4: Many of us supply Ribena. And they pay us on the sweetness because it makes processing easier for them if there's more juice and sweetness in the berries. So it, it's been a really good season for us. And that's,
0: That is good news. I mean, with the the hot weather, would that affect the fruit growing at all? You say obviously the roots are roots are there, but the actual fruits would that start to uh,
4: shrivel it almost? And I mean or? we we could have been worried we, because they can get very dried and shriveled if it's really hot for a very extended period. Um, but I think because there was enough moisture in the ground, and the, we did have a couple of bits of rain which swelled them right at the end. Um, and I don't think the quality is good because you haven't got rain, so you haven't got botrytis and all those other things that can affect uh, the damper harvests. So, all in all, no, it's worked out really well.
0: Tell, tell us a bit about the foundation.
4: So, the foundation was set up by the growers um, about 20 years ago now to raise awareness of the health benefits of black currants. They've got more vitamin C weight for weight than an orange by four times. Uh, they're full of anthocyanins and antioxidants, which, of course, are really good for you. Um, and there's many, many other cancer curing, urinary tract infection, eye strain. We've, we've got a lot of peer-researched uh, reviews, which um, we can prove how brilliant we are. True super fruit.
0: And how, how big is the industry? How, big are, uh, how many grows are there, if you like, in the UK?
4: There are about 40 grows in the UK. The majority of them supply into Ribena, but there are a lot of other products out there as well. So there's individually quick frozen because they're very difficult to get seasonally because they deteriorate on the shelf. Um, but jams, uh, cheesecakes, alcoholic products, um, they're, they're, they, they are quite accessible, but you have to look for them.
0: So, overall, a, a good season, then. you've had a good, It's been a, a good year. Does this compare well with previous years, better than previous
4: years? Um, I would say the quantity has been similar to previous years, uh, maybe a little bit more, but the quality has definitely been fairly exceptional. And this BRICS level, which is the available sugar in the fruit, I mean, that has been amazing. We were 25% uh, sweeter. Our fruit was 25% sweeter than last year, which was good news for us.
0: And, and yields are good as well this year, aren't they?
4: And yields are pretty good. I mean, they're, they're not exceptional, the yields, uh, by any means, but uh, it was slightly up on last year. So as long as the quality is good, that's what the processors are looking for, and that's what we've been able to supply.
0: You said, obviously, you're, as well as obviously being chair of the, the foundation, you're a grower as well. What, what got you into growing? How long have you been growing the blackcurrants?
4: Oh, I'm a fourth generation farmer, and I'm quite sure I found some old stuff of my great grandfathers in Victorian times. They definitely always had blackcurrant bushes on the farm. But post-war, we were one one of the early Ribena growers, um, and then we supplied into lots of jam. So uh, yeah, we've been growing for 120 years, I would say.
0: Now you've got the the Great British Berry Watch as well. Uh, Anyone who's been following the foundation will know. Tell us a little bit about that, Joe.
4: So that is to Connect everyone with the farm. So too often you go into the supermarkets and you buy Ribena or punnet of of blackcurrants or blackcurrant jam, but you don't really know where they come from. Um, The header on our, our big Great British Berry Watch is the harvest going on. And it's a really great bit of footage. Um, Tractors going through really sunny, lovely fields, the black currents churning out the back of the machines. Looks fantastic. So this connecting of the consumer with the end product is what we should all be doing as farmers. And I I think this is a really good example of how to connect.
0: It is important, isn't it? It's important that we do engage.
4: It's really important because I think that, you know, we've lost touch as consumers with how anything is produced. Um, and we've been, we've been doing great, uh, something called the Big Berry Bash this summer as well, where we've been inviting anybody onto farms. I think we've had six of them around the UK. Um, so we've had a huge collection of people who've actually been out on farms. They've been on the harvester. They've been watching the black currants come out of the back. They've been tasting black currant products. They've been eating black currants straight off the bush. And I think that's, that's really good for, for, for anybody and fun.
0: It definitely is. definitely fun. I should have done that myself. I should, I should come next year. Yeah, we'll do where that. were you? <laughs> we'll come next year. We'll come and do it next year. Uh, Joe, where, where can people find out more about the Foundation?
4: So on the Facebook feed um, is UK Blackcurrants, um, but we also have a website, blackcurrantfoundation.co.uk, and on there you can find all the scientific stuff and all the, all the research that I was talking about. On the Facebook feed you can find out much more about the actual farming and what's going on, and there are old videos which are through the season about early in the season, the planting, pruning, all of that. So there's, there's loads of info there.
0: Fabulous. Thank you, Joe Hilditch of the British Black Current Foundation. I will keep that pledge to go on farm next season as well. Let's stick with fruit for a little longer, shall we? Research claims less than 50% of people in Britain are getting their five a day, or at least admitting it to researchers. It is a shame that more fruit, such as blackcurrants, aren't being sampled daily. Yes, 90% goes to Ribena. That's still 10% for us to eat. And there are other fruits to be had too, including blueberries, which have been on the rise among shoppers. Uh, Nick Walton is from Berry World, as well as that natural sweetness thanks to the weather. They've been working to improve the varieties of such fruit. So, Nick, tell us more about what you've been doing.
5: Yeah, we do. We put a lot of work into the breeding programs, um, looking at key things how we can improve you know, improve the varieties in terms of appearance, flavour and texture. Basically, you're taking two blueberry varieties and crossing them to produce a, a daughter or a son variety that is much better. That's what we're looking for, and we put a lot of focus on this going forward.
0: I guess that, that gives a consistency, does it, across the berries?
5: Yeah, we also look to, to grow in, the, in particular areas. So we're, we're growing with, with suppliers. We work with key suppliers around the world. Um, our, at Berry World, our top ten suppliers account for 66% of our of our production. So we're and we've been dealing with these suppliers more than 10, 15 years. We take fruit from South America, from South Africa. We're big in in Spain and Morocco, um, but but still 45% of of our production comes from the UK. So we're not forgetting that. Blueberries have seen 120% growth in the last five years, that's £150 million, and over 10 years, say 10 years ago, blueberries, only 14% of the population bought blueberries in
0: 2006, and now 46% of shoppers buy blueberries. And why is that? Is Is it because there are benefits of eating blueberries, and obviously we're all on this health kick nowadays?
5: yeah the blueberries are fantastic and i've spoken about the versatility and the availability but if we compare that to the number one fruit in the uk bananas an equivalent portion to a small banana is a small handful of blueberries 80 grams and that 80 grams contains seven and a half times more antioxidant activity than the banana they're a great source of fiber and vitamin c and there's nothing um artificial in there
0: i guess the big question nick do you get your five a day
5: be honest. No, <laughs> we are readily available, have have the berries in the in our kitchen and we we're constantly doing benchmarking, trying to find the best varieties and what what we can do to improve that consistency year round. So unfortunately I can say I'm probably one of that fifty percent that aren't getting their regular five a day every day. But uh, yeah, we need we need as a nation to,
0: to try and get there. Nick Walton from Berry World.
5: The
1: farming programme. Five day forecast.
0: It's a bit of a roller coaster, uh, it's, it's fair to say, with temperatures up and down highs and low pressure as well also trying to compete for our attention today for example there is some rain to come, Uh, we're looking at highs of around 17 Celsius, quite breezy as well from the south, 15 but gusting at 30 miles an hour by the end of the day, that rain won't last for long though should soon pass over and then it's uh, a dry but uh, cloudy night ahead 13 the low, the wind continuing from the west at 12, maybe gusting at 25 miles an hour, then a sunny bank holiday Monday which is good to hear, 19 the high, the wind still from the west at about about 15 miles an hour. Clear sky is to start Monday night into Tuesday morning, but some cloud to come. 12 the low. The wind more from the southeast at about five miles an hour, and then a sunny start to Tuesday. But it will cloud over with some rain to come. Could be heavy as we hit uh, Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. Highs for Tuesday a little warmer, 23. The wind from the south at about 15 miles an hour. As I say, another band of rain sweeping across uh, through early parts of Wednesday morning. Could be very heavy in places as well. We'll watch that as we get nearer to Wednesday. Uh, 14, the overnight low. The wind, more from the north. 15, gusting at 25 miles an hour. And then a wet Wednesday. Should dry out by the end of the day. We're looking at uh, a cooler 15 as a high. And the wind continuing from the north, uh, 15 to 25 miles an hour. Then the latter end of the week, it should be drier once that rain has passed over. We're looking at highs nearer 17 Celsius, with lows of around 9 degrees. And that's the forecast. Next week, we'll help launch Love Lamb Week, and we hear from the British Free Range Egg Producers Association as they ask for an immediate price rise. Why? We'll explain next week. Until then, have a good week's farming.